This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Headspace is the National Youth Mental Health Foundation and Charlie Cooper from the organisation joins us on the line. Hey, how are you doing? Hi, Charlie. I'm very good. Thanks for having me again. It's wonderful to chat with you. Charlie, let's start with the Marriage Equality Postal Survey. Mm. To what extent do you think the campaign is a mental health issue for young queer people? So, I mean, I can speak about this as a personal perspective, but also on behalf of the young people that I work with. I mean, I first got involved as an advocate at Headspace based on my own lived experiences with mental illness. Um, I was very fortunate growing up that although I had a highly anxiety-induced and sort of really distressing few years prior to coming out to my family, I grew up in a relatively conservative Catholic background, um, and it was I mean, despite growing up in a very open-minded and supportive space and group of people and friendship groups and all of that, coming out was without doubt the most terrifying conversation I've ever had and the impact that it had on my mental health was huge. And so when I got involved with Headspace um, as an advocate for youth mental health and encouraging early help-seeking, I realised that this experience is so common amongst LGBTIQ plus young Australians, but Unfortunately, most young Australians don't get it as easy as I did in the sense that most of them or many of them don't have that. Um, you know, I was showered with support when I came out, but I, for many young Aussies, they still live in fear. They may even grow up in, homo- in families where there's homophobia. They may not feel safe to be open about their identity. And all of these questions like, you know, am I normal? You know, what, what does society expect of me? You know, will I be accepted by those around me, by my society? All of those questions are exacerbated by this very distressing public debate. And I think it's just so important that we keep in mind the impact that it's having on, on um, young people going through a tough time because it's, there's no doubt about the, the impact that it can have on our mental health. Charlie, have you been seeing more young queer people coming into the centre in the lead up to this postal vote? Um, so I'm not, I'm a, I don't work directly in the centres. I, I am in there quite often, but as I'm not a clinician, I don't know the specific numbers. But what I do know is that about 25% of the young people coming into headspace centres across Australia identify as LGBTIQ. And I mean, the saddening thing is that we've made so much progress in creating these safe spaces and encouraging early help seeking and, you know, reducing the stigma around mental health in previous years, particularly within the queer community. But it, it almost feels like this debate is pushing us back you know, five, ten years in the sense that it's creating, it's exacerbating that fear and that uncertainty. And, you know, unfortunately, the very small minority of voices who are have views that when expressed can be very hurtful, although they're a minority because they're so vocal, it feels like they are at times a majority and that can be quite misleading and really, really hurtful to young people trying to work out, you know, who they are and just looking for a sense of inclusion and, and support. Charlie, within your networks, what concerns are young queer people telling you? Well, I mean, it's really interesting. So um, I work as a peer support worker with Q Headspace. So basically we create online peer support sessions where young people can anonymously log in and, and chat with us and raise their concerns. What's really interesting is we get a lot of young people coming in from rural and remote towns. So a lot of young people in rural towns seem to be... It seems like there's a... 
often the struggle and the stigma can be a, a bit higher there, both around mental health but also around LGBTI issues. And what's really cool is many of the young people logging on actually are speaking to us for the first time or speaking to someone for the first time about their concerns or their confusion around their gender identity or their sexuality. So some of the questions are as basic as, you know, how do I know? What does it feel like to be same-sex attracted? Like, I, you know, I have these feelings towards my mate. It, does that mean this? Or, you know, I've, I think I might be non-binary. I think I might... Lots of very, you know, basic first-step type questions which suggest that Many young people just need an, an accepting, non-threatening space to just talk it out with, with other people who get it. And the debate can sort of create fear around seeking those, those spaces, so it can be really, really harmful. But I think the positive side, although it's a very challenging time, is that it's really highlighting not only the not-so-safe spaces, but it's bringing out louder than ever our, our allies and our support and I think it's really important to keep you know keep an, an eye out for the positive messages that are out there because there are a lot of them. What are some of the services that que- young queer people can access if the campaign is? Yeah okay cool so, so for those who don't know Headspace has drop-in centres about a hundred of them across Australia so if you live in, in um, one of uh, are we talking to the whole of Australia right now or just Victoria? Victoria. Well, it's it's interesting actually because of course you can hear us online uh, anytime you okay. want over the next week. So they could be in Timbuktu <laughs> okay. for all we know. Cool, Timbuktu. Okay, so there are nice. a few options. If you are in, a, you can log on to headspace.org.au, chuck in your postcode, and you'll be able to find your nearest centre. However, if you're not close to a centre, you can actually chat to a qualified mental health clinician online at eHeadspace. Um, that can be anonymous as well. Um, and they also run peer support sessions. So if you look out um, on Headspace's Facebook page, um, you'll, you'll see updates around the peer support, um, yeah, coming up in the next sort of week or so. But the other thing to keep in mind is Lifeline is always there, um, which I believe is 13, 11, 14. And Q Life is another amazing organisation which connects young, well, Australians, of any age, actually, with trained queer-identifying volunteers who can give telephone and web-based counselling. Um, but the most important thing is that, you know, if young people or adults, it doesn't really matter what your age is, if you're finding that, that things are getting too overwhelming, reach out for professional help. Um, you know, it's one thing to talk to our friends and family, but sometimes we just need to um, speak to someone who might not have that vested interest or, you know, it can really be really powerful to speak to someone um, in the mental health space as well. Charlie, do you think the federal government has adequately resourced mental health services to deal with our issues the campaign may trigger? No, absolutely not. I, um, yeah, don't get me started on this conversation, but I, <laughs> uh, yeah, I have no doubt that the, I mean, to be honest, if I go back sort of a month and you'd ask me the same question, I would have answered from the perspective of, you know, the young, pe- young people who may not have come out yet and who may be struggling to, to grapple with their identity. But I have no doubt that this, this conversation has had an impact on my own mental health, but also on, you know, friends and family who identify as queer and who have been out for many, many years because it, it does, when there is such vocal um, and, 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 and really hurtful negative arguments that are often based on complete nonsense... Um, it can really cause you to question, I don't know, yeah, it, it can be, it surprised me how much it has um, challenged my own mental health. So I think, you know, it's really important that we all look after ourselves, we all look out for each other and, and keep in mind that 
you know, regardless of our support systems, it's going to be a tough time and we need to um, have each other's back and remind each other to reach out for help when we need it. Charlie, how can people access Q Headspace? Yep, so if people go to eheadspace.org.au, um, they can then click on group chats and underneath group chats there are various um, different options, but that's where they'll find Q Headspace. The other best step is to... Um, on Facebook, follow the, head, the National Headspace Facebook page, and that's where we post all our updates with registration links and all of that. Um, but, yeah, there'll probably be going an update going up in the next few days. So um, we're completely volunteer-run at the moment, so we don't have any funding, which, I mean, you know, coming from a National Youth Mental Health Foundation, you'd think there would be some allocated funding for one of, you know, the most at-risk groups during a very difficult time. But at the moment, we're all doing this... Um, on a volunteer basis and we can only um, yeah, go live every two weeks at the moment just because we don't have that funding. So we're applying for grants and hopefully we'll be able to increase our reach. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult time, there's no doubt about that. Thanks so much, Charlie, for being with us today. You're listening to 3CR Radio. So we're about to go into another interview and please be aware that during the interview, it might contain themes of sexual assault and financial abuse, and it may be just distressing to some listeners. So I'm joined on the phone now with um, Nilmini Fernando, um, a researcher at Wire Women's Information, which is a referral service for Victorian women. And her current projects aim to help women who've experienced family violence and financial abuse and the financial devastation women face during and after it. Welcome, Nilmini. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Thanks, Yvette. Yeah. Hi. I think to start with, it might help if we define what family violence and financial abuse are. Yes. I think most of the earlier term, I mean, these are all contested terms, mm-hmm. So, but domestic violence was the earlier term and family violence is broader in that it acknowledges there are other relationships that are not just intimate partner relationships. Um, which are controlling, which, you know, where one, where perpetrators can exert control and power over the other. Um, and so in a way, it's kind of good to think about domestic and family violence. You know, I usually put both of those together. Family violence um, um, includes, for example, elder abuse, where there could be adult children um, of an older person, uh, and the perpetrator in that case can be a woman or a man, you know, usually adult children or even carers. Um but in intimate partner violence, where we get most of the, you know, the calls at wire and the statistics really show that um, intimate partner violence between men and women is huge. Um, it's endemic, actually. Yeah. So within that, like, it's only lately that financial abuse has been sort of identified as a specific form of perpetrated behavior. Um, and, you know, the, just looking at the UK, US, Australia, the statistics are of all the women that seek services, family violence services, between 80 to 99% of them have also experienced financial abuse. So it's not mm. something that comes, um, into, you know, I, apart. It's just it's another form of control. And it's a very potent and disabling form of control. If financial abuse is not widely known as a type of family violence, is, is part of the problem that women suffering it don't recognise it as such? Definitely. It's a very gendered issue as well. And one of the problems has been that um, domestic and family violence haven't identified um, the different ways that women are silenced, I guess, about reporting. 
different emotional relationships women have with money, gender st- structures and stereotypes um, that persist, and they it's a silence. You know, it's kind of happening in plain sight. And it's very difficult to find words and uh, the shame and guilt and, you know, all these sort of social factors um, inhibit and, you know, prevent us talking about it, and women themselves don't really identify it. So one of, the, one of the important things about the work I'm doing is to actually sort of, it's something that most, for example, in my training with um, family violence workers, we've all seen it. You know, it's been seen again and again and again. We know it either in our clients or maybe in our own family or ourselves, but um, it hasn't been named. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a matter of bringing it up. And to do that, we need to actually have terms and words and to have you know, ways of discussing it so that it can be talked about and then more women will be able to identify it. Mm. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Well, actually, getting to some of your research with WIRE, your latest research project, which is funded by Financial Literacy Australia, so it's investigating whether or not women receive the financial support they needed. So what are you you collecting so far, DataWise? Yeah, um, WIRE has been – it's actually – pretty much one of the first orgs in Australia to go um, to really start looking at women and finances. And it's through that that the discovery of financial abuse became a thing because we were sort of focused on, you know, what literacy skills they might need. And in fact, women have excellent money skills on the whole, but with family violence and with um, financial abuse, those skills become demolished, basically. Women lose their confidence, they lose their belief in themselves because they've never, and maybe the opportunity to practice money skills because of the control that's exerted over them. So financial abuse is like, we like to define it as a range of behaviors that perpetrators use in a systematic and a pattern to exploit or to control um, the finances of the other partner. And mm-hmm. it's abusive. It's um, it's threatening. They you know, they use a variety of means, including physical and sexual violence, to um, wield control over the partner. So they, it can be a matter of like relinquishing control, you know, over assets, like you know, forcing them to sign over their mortgage, sign mm-hmm. for a joint loan, which they're not going to benefit from, or even secretly and very often secret finances are a really big red flag. Mm-hmm. You know, um, actually managing to shift, you know, to make changes and remortgage the house without their knowledge. Are some women more at risk than others? Um, I mean, do you find that um, if uh, the female, if she's unemployed or been out of the workforce for a while, or if she's a stay-at-home yeah. mother, do they increase the? Definitely. It increases the vulnerability, the the vulnerability in terms of making decisions over money. And I think what the best way to look at it is uh, looking across the life course. And women have, you know, they go in and out of unemployment. Perhaps they are staying home, like you said, to look after children. Mm -hmm. And within that, their vulnerability goes right down because they may be into part-time work, left work, they may not have superannuation contributions. So if the separation comes and there is family violence and they have to separate, um, she has nothing to show for all her work. So it's it's on an individual basis, but it's also the systemic gendered structures mm-hmm. that operate um, around women in finances. So definitely it can cause 
um, unemployment. Family violence can cause unemployment, uh, unemployment and underemployment because you get women who've got really serious injuries, for example, you know, maybe brain injuries from the physical attacks and they can't work. Or you might get a perpetrator um, harassing them at work and they have to leave their work. Or they have to flee the situation and change jobs or not, and maybe not be able to get another job. Um, so all, there's so many factors. In fact, it's quite overwhelming sometimes when you think this is going on every day. Mm. Um, and so it's and even women who come from quite high socioeconomic, um, you know, and middle class, you know, or you know, above average incomes can end up with absolutely nothing after a separation. Well, that was my next question. Yeah, is is there any socioeconomic group that's that's that you find family violence occurs more in? No, I just find that the strategies are different. If there's money, the fight is about money. If there isn't money, it can be physical. I mean, mm. so many of the women um, that I've been working with recently um, um, have been left with, like, who were quite well off to start with, through the courts and the family courts in particular, the assets division. And also, you know, I've heard stories about women who can't afford to get, who don't qualify for legal aid because they might still have part-time work mm. or own a house, right? They could still own the house, but they find it unsafe to live in, so they have to move. So because they own a house, they can't have legal aid. So I've heard stories of women turning up to represent themselves, and the perpetrator has, you know, a very wealthy with a lot of, you know, contacts and coming with a team of six lawyers. Um, and it's just uh, the family court has come up a lot in this, mm. um, the not understanding uh, and debts, I mean, there was a woman I spoke to the other day who's left with $20,000 debts um, that she didn't know where to go to help to, whether, you know, they can write them off or they can waive those debts. And now, actually, since the Royal Commission, there are more services on board who are right. will be able to help women to actually try to get those debts waived and moved yeah. Well, the Andrews government is expanding training at Victoria Victorian public hospitals, and I think it's like $10 million to train thousands more healthcare workers. Um, and then, of course, the state budget, $2 billion is being invested for domestic violence programs. Is this, is it enough? <laughs> okay, so there are two things going on here. On a, a lot of the complaints, a lot of the frustrations that I'm hearing are not just to do with the escaping the violence. That's mm-hmm. bad enough, right? But it's actually once they get out of those situations, trying to engage with a range of services. So training for staff is crucial. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about Centrelink. We're talking about um, lawyers. We're talking about healthcare professionals. Um, that is very important. But also the, the system itself is broken, you know, the support mm-hmm. network. So we, we sort of the women have no choice but to leave. Once they leave... For example, we had a, um, a, a story about a woman who was preparing to leave. She was still in the in the relationship. And one of the strategies we use is to prepare to leave by setting up a secret bank account and so on um, so that when the time comes, she can actually leave safely. Because as you might know, or well, I, I think many people realize this, the time of leaving is the greatest threat to the woman's life. Yeah. So it's a really huge thing. So we're looking at like financial security safety plan as well as a physical safety plan. And then you go to the bank won't um, allow her to open an account without something coming into it. Centrelink won't give her the money until she's left the home. So there's mm-hmm. the gap. Meanwhile, her open, if she even she's managed to open a bank account, that's accruing fees because it's not being used. Does that make sense? There's the sort yeah. of gaps, yeah, the safety net mm. that we find. Well, 
I wanted to get to another project of yours before we head out. So the Purse Project, it's a a workshop for family violence workers. Yes. Um, So family violence workers, um, who are they um, and what are they going to be learning from the workshop? Yeah, a lot of family violence workers are women Mm -hmm. um, and they're women from all walks of life and all professions and, you know, earlier professions and trainings and so on. And what has been found is that the relationship with women, opening the money conversation, being able to talk to women and make it safe for women to talk about money, it's one of the major skills that's needed because the only way to identify um, and name financial abuse is through a conversation. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we, we contextualize, you know, um, family violence, the links we show about, we teach about the impact and the effects of it that it has, but also really focusing on that relationship of trust that can be built up with the woman. So a lot of it is about unpacking women's, um, having, you know, money conversations with women and unpacking their earlier relationships, money and so on. And it's not, and also we provide a range of tools. Um, For example, the family violence journey is, you know, it can, there's a lot of stages to it, like there's maybe before the crisis when a woman knows things aren't quite right, she might be seeking help then. So there's a strategy that can be used then. Once she's left, obviously, we need to get her out, get her into a safe place. But also at that point to plant the seed, perhaps, of, okay, what, you know, how can we strengthen your financial position now? And then the really big problems happen in the post-crisis. After they've left, yeah. then the housing and homelessness, being able to find suitable accommodation and work, all those things actually make the woman more vulnerable to re-victimization, either with the same perpetrator or another perpetrator. Mm. So there's a range of really important strategies at work that can be done then as well. So we're looking at all the different stages. Although they don't happen in a, in a straight line, it is in, quite important because the stage of leaving and the crisis is a time where most of the women who have, what they ask for is space and safety, um, whereas afterwards they're more you know, able to think about work and um, building up their financial security and stability. So um, help is needed at all those stages. Speaking of, so WIRE is looking for partic- participants to contribute to new and existing research. So which of our listeners could get involved and what do they need to know? Oh, well, it would be wonderful to hear. First of all, you don't even have to have, you know, call what you're going through family violence. Mm-hmm. If you've had a difficult relationship and it's left you and there's a money story attached to that, we'd like to hear from you and we don't really mind. Um, we're looking for women who might be still in those kind of relationships or have left recently or have left quite a long time ago. Um, It might have happened, you know, 20 years in the past. We really like to hear from women and why we really um, value the woman's lived experience Mm -hmm. because of all the things that we might plan and strategize and try to implement programs, the woman herself knows and she's at the center of her story. She's, you know, she knows what she didn't have and what she had and what worked. So through listening to women's stories, we are hoping to be able to identify the better moments that we can actually offer certain types of help, um, financial capacity and building and financial, actual financial support, um, the best times and the best ways. Like they may not always want to go to a workshop. You know, where are some of the places that we can put this information so women can get it? Right. Um, yeah, so they can just contact us at WIRE. And we've also got a lot of really important sort of financial stuff on our website. You can have a look on there as well. Just and read up more about it. At wire.org.au? Yes, www.wire.org.au. Yeah. And we have a site called Women Talk Money, uh, which has been 
won a prize by the Financial Literacy Australia for, and it gives you a lot of scripts that you can talk, you can how you can have those difficult money conversations with partners. Um, and it's a really fantastic website. It's very easy, and it actually can be used by younger women too who are getting into relationships and you know starting to live together for the first time and so on. Yeah. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.